We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, world? I'm Willie. And I'm Hammer. And today we have a very special guest coming from Toronto, Canada. This is Amy. Hi, Amy. Hey, thanks for having me. Sorry about my voice. Yeah, Willie, you sound like, uh, <laughs> like I don't know, like you gargled with some uh, vinegar right before. I got the a show. case of the laryngitis. No, oh, it sounds laryngitis. Cheering, awesome. cheering my wife on. Oh, good. Yeah. At least it was she for was, a good cause. She was in a in a strong man, strong woman competition. Her first one yesterday, and uh, it was for a really good cause in Utah. We have uh, a fundraising uh, nonprofit called mascots for miracles and they take all the utah mascots and raise money for families and we got to be a part of that so it was pretty fun but i did and in fact mess up my voice so amy i'm sorry but i think it was worth it i'm glad you could be here this is this is one that i uh i'm really looking forward to is i had a great time talking to you when we got our our war story from you which is an amazing story and um you know you amy is a speaker and a coach and an author. She does so much stuff. She's helped so many women and people in recovery. And so we uh, we wanted to get her on here and, and just chat it up. Give us some information outside of our comfort zone. Yeah, that's what right. it's all about. I, I think that it's important, you know, that we remain open to all the different ways to recover. Um, and, uh, and Amy, you know, is um, outside of what we what we know is recovery. Yeah, we right? call it we call it traditional. Yeah, recovery. I mean you can call it traditional, um, but we, I mean, our twelve step recovery, like we we uh, come to to the table with uh, with a twelve step recovery. Um, but I, I love hearing other people's journeys and other people's stories with uh, with recovery because it's important to remember that there's not one single way to get sober. Yeah, um, and so I, I think that it's important that we have people like Amy on the show and they can talk to us about, um, you know, what it was like for them and, and what they were able to do to get sober, um, you know, outside of that. Yeah. So Amy, welcome. I don't know if I said that already or not. You did. And thank you again. I'm I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So Amy, tell tell us, tell us a little bit about what you do. I know you you touch on it in your story, but who is Amy? (laughs) Um, Well, my name is Amy C. Willis. I use she, her pronouns. And as you mentioned, I'm a sobriety and mindset coach. I predominantly work with women who are looking to essentially reclaim their lives and like get alcohol out of the way and find their freedom and find their power through sobriety. And I came to this work after struggling with a pretty severe alcohol addiction for more than 15 years. And I grew up in a home with a parent, my dad, who also struggled with alcohol addiction pretty severely. Um, And he ended up drinking himself to death. And so, you know, that was a 
that was a moment in my life that really changed the trajectory for me. Um, I didn't immediately get sober after that. In fact, my addiction got an awful lot worse, but um, his death really was a gift that changed things significantly for me. And um, through his passing and dealing with my own addiction and just getting clear that I would, I am here for something other than struggling with addiction and I am here to have an impact and I'm here to support people. Um, I found my way to coaching and I've been coaching full-time now for the last um, almost three years. It'll be three years in June. Um, And as you mentioned, I'm also a writer and a speaker. I'm a meditation teacher. I'm an EFT practitioner. So I kind of bring a lot of different things to my coaching practice. And um, I support my clients through uh, a bunch of different ways, but resilience building, um, mindset transformation. So really getting clear on what we believe to be true about ourselves and about the world and actually pushing back on some of those beliefs because we often hold beliefs that are not in fact true. Mm-hmm. Um, they aren't true of us. They aren't true of what we're capable of. They aren't true of, in this case of alcohol or other drugs um, and really doing work to challenge the beliefs that maybe we've been living our lives with, you know, for many, many years. Um, I also do a lot around habit change with my clients. So not just not, taking drugs and drinking, but all the stuff around it that supports, um, substance use. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's a bit about me. Um, I live in Toronto when I'm not working, which feels like not a lot of time. Um, I love reading. I love getting outside. I like riding my indoor bike. And during COVID, I found a really fun hobby called cross stitch. And, uh, I've been stitching up a storm for the last year and a half. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show, and, and one of the things that, that came up, and as you were talking, I was thinking about this question, you know, words and labels are pretty important, and I think in all things, you know, and one of the mm-hmm. things that me and Cameron have come across by doing the podcast is this um, identification through one of the things that, like you talk about, is alcohol addiction versus what Cameron and I would say is alcoholism. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, being an alcoholic versus alcohol free Mm -hmm. or, or, um, you know, these different labels. And how important do you think that is to the psyche or the way that people view themselves? Or is that something that you run into with your practice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think language is incredibly powerful. And with that, I think that we need to be really intentional with the words that we choose and the language that we use, especially when we're talking about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I want to also preface this by saying whatever works for people is what works for people. So if, if it works for you and alcoholic feels helpful and empowering, like use it. Absolutely. Use what works for you. And if it doesn't know that it's okay and you don't have to, Mm -hmm. like, I remember in my early days of getting sober, um, Prior to my own sobriety, I had gone to a few Al-Anon meetings just because of stuff with my dad. And I went to a few AA meetings and 
I said it, I said, hi, I'm an Amy, I am Amy and I'm an alcoholic. And I was like, this does not feel right. This doesn't feel right <laughs> in my body for me. And it wasn't about not having a problem because I very much had a problem in my relationship to drinking, but something about it just didn't feel right. And so I've never really taken it up and I've spent a lot of time thinking about what it means to apply a label like that to ourselves. And I think it can become almost part of our identity when we say I am something, right? I am an alcoholic versus I dealt with alcohol addiction, which is an experience. And for me, I feel like I had absolutely an alcohol addiction. It was terrible. It was ruining my life. It was definitely a problem for me. Um, but it doesn't feel like a core part of my identity that I will forever have to grapple with and deal with and all of those things. So I do think that language matters. I think that labels matter. I think that identity parts of us matter. Mm -hmm. And again, if it works for you and it feels helpful and useful, like, please do it. Right. And that, that will always be my answer to anything in terms right. of approaches to sobriety and how you live your life. Um, but for me, it didn't work and it didn't feel right putting that on myself. Um, and so I, I don't, I choose not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I totally understand that. I think when I was first, you know, like you said, um, in AA, you know, that's, that's the term that you most commonly hear. And I think when I was first, um, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was, to, it, it felt weird to, to, to say that. And I think, um, even down the road, as I sort of expanded my mind with, um, with knowing a little bit about, like you said, language and how important it is and the things that we tell ourselves matter and, and, um, and, and beginning to wonder, like, is it okay that I'm calling myself an alcoholic every time that I'm in these situations? Like, even though I'm not technically, you know, active in, in that addiction. And I think for me, like the place that I came to with it was like, I know what I mean when I say that, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I understand what other people hear when I say that, but I know what I mean when I say it. And, and yeah. for me, it's like, it's, it's a simple reminder. And I think that that's the important thing is that, um, that the words that we tell ourselves absolutely matter, but the, mm -hmm. the definition behind the words matter to us internally. And so like when I say I'm Cameron, I'm an alcoholic, it's a reminder, Hey man, like you have this thing in you that will surely consume everything. Should you decide to take another drink? And, mm -hmm. and so like I came to a place with it where like I became okay with calling myself that, but it, it was a process and it was, it was something mm -hmm. like I did really have to consciously ask myself, which is why I think it's important to, to have the conversation around language because, um, yeah. because I totally agree. Like, and, and for me, like, um, actually when I first brought my wife around the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. She'd never been exposed to anything like that. And she would hear people stand up and introduce themselves as alcoholics. And she was like, I don't know why you would do that. Like, I, I don't understand why you tell yourself that if you're no longer dealing with it. And, and so I've had this conversation with her before and, and, you know, and really had to ask myself, um, you know, some of that stuff in that instance. So mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, it's interesting. It really is. Yeah. 
And I want to talk to I want to talk to you a little bit more um, about because we're talking about you know the commonalities in in, in all these different pathways to um, to recovery. And so I want to talk to you because what I have found is the relationship with alcohol oftentimes can be can be different um, for different individuals. And I know based on what we heard in your story um, that alcohol for you was very much something that you used to numb the, the emotions that you were feeling and some of the turmoil that you were going through. Um, but that's, that's not always the case. Like we recently just had Blair on the show and, mm-hmm. and uh, Blair very much said that for her, it was just more of a social lubricant. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that it's important to also state, like while we're on this subject of language matters, but it doesn't, you know, like whatever works for you works for you. Like alcoholism or being addicted to alcohol can absolutely mean that you were using it to cope with your feelings or it's a social lubricant. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like what you said in your story was just so great because you said like, ask yourself if alcohol is bringing any value to your life and whether you're using it as a social lubricant or you're using it to numb your emotions. Um, that question is still pertinent, right? Um, and it's mm. still pivotal if you're looking to possibly make the change um, in in removing alcohol. So I don't know. I, I I thought it was I thought it was very fascinating. But I want to talk a little bit about um, your personal relationship to alcohol. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about what alcohol did for you? And was it always was it always something you used in that fashion? Um, so I think. You know, I started drinking with friends socially, like in social environments and learned like, oh, this thing actually kind of makes me feel a little bit better and allows me to just like relax and forget about all the shit that's going on in my life right now. Um, So I think I used it for a multitude of reasons, like definitely coping and just trying to like press pause on everything that was happening that felt out of my control and tremendously stressful and really upsetting and just like chaos all the time. Um, And I used it socially and I used it when I was happy and when I was sad. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, a very full spectrum of of uses, Um, you know, and I think like we have this tendency sometimes to like restory what happened to us um, as though like alcohol was only doom and gloom. And like, I'm the first to say that I had many fun nights, right? right? While drinking and every single night wasn't like blacking out and throwing up the next day. Like there were lots of times that were fun that involved alcohol and it just got to a place where things were so dark and I was using it for terrible reasons. I mean, not that there's a great reason to use it, but like, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I think it served a multitude of, of purposes for me. Um, but very, you know, in the beginning, definitely as like a coping tool. And I also think that that is, um, a byproduct of the way that alcohol is, 
sold to us. Sure. You know, like alcohol is sold to us as a solution for everything. Um, We drink when we're happy. We drink when we're sad. It's like graduation or a funeral. Right. We're drinking all the same. Right. And it's, it's sold to us as like this solution for every possible thing that we want to do, whether we want to be happy or down or whatever. Um, And so, you know, for me, like it was a very broad spectrum of the Mm. ways that I used it. Yeah. When you were talking about a relationship with alcohol, um, I started going through um, some memories of mine. And I remember as a kid it, it, into my teens, I would I would get with my friends and, mm-hmm. and the relationship with my friends was to be with my friends. And then one weekend or one day, whatever, alcohol was added. But that relationship between the friends, it hadn't changed. But then mm-hmm. a second weekend with alcohol was added. And then a third. Mm-hmm. And, and the intention was to go hang out with our friends. But slowly but surely, it seems like when I look back at it, this progression and this, this importance was started to be put on when we would call each other. The question yeah. would come up, what's going on this weekend? Are we hanging out? Or, and it went to, what's going on this weekend? Where are we drinking? Mm-hmm. To, you know, what's going on this Tuesday? Or let's yeah. go drink. Like, like it just progressed from having relationships with people without anything in there, uh, just kids having fun right. to this relationship with alcohol and people were there, you know, and you talk about yeah. that a little bit in your story too, where we were, we, you know, you're drinking alone and, and that kind of thing. And, and it's so elusive. And so when you, when you go into a coaching call or somebody calls you and they start talking about, um, their, their relationship with alcohol or what's going on with, how do you help them identify whether there's, you know, if they're a problem drinker or, um, you know, that kind of thing. How do you help them identify that relationship? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, to be very honest, I asked them a lot of the same questions that I talked about in my story. So, like, what are you looking to get from this thing? Like, what are you hoping to achieve by adding alcohol to this situation? And then a follow-up to that is, does it actually deliver on the thing that you are hoping for? So maybe if it's like to amplify a fun night, does it actually do that? And when you're thinking about it, think about all the time, like leading up to like the planning of the drinking and the actual drinking, how you feel after the drinking, like do a, you know, scan of the whole, the whole end to end situation. And like, did alcohol do what you were hoping for? Mm. Um, what are you, uh, trying to create with adding alcohol to it that you think you can't create on your own? Mm -hmm. Um, if one of the, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about is like, if I was actually having fun and really enjoying myself in all these situations, would I have had to add, copious amounts of alcohol to it right Mm -hmm. so like are you there because you actually enjoy it or are you there because you feel obligated to be there and alcohol makes that a little bit easier are you i don't know violating your boundaries left right and center and that feels really crappy and alcohol makes it easier to sit in that for yourself so it's really just a lot of a lot of questions and a lot of deep dives on what this thing is because For a lot of people, probably not us right now, but for a lot of people, you know, alcohol is so normal. Mm -hmm. It's such a normative practice. 
And a lot of people just take it for granted that it's just part of their lives. They don't think about what they're, what they're doing, what they want in this situation, how they want to actually feel what they want the outcome to be. And, you know, having a, a very um, honest, intentional conversation with somebody about all of those things, like, what are you, what are you hoping to get here? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you want in this moment? Um, can be really eye-opening just as a, a starting point to our work and a starting point to really thinking clearly about your relationship with this super addictive toxic substance mm. that we've all been convinced to put into our bodies and love it. Yeah, I love that because I I feel like the the illusion is that alcohol is going to make everything better. Like, I, you mm -hmm. know, if I'm going to go out for this night, I'm, I'm going to go out, but if I add alcohol to it, I'm going to have an even better time. And the more mm -hmm. often we do that, or at least in my, in my experience, right. The more often I did that, the more often it just became a staple to the point where yeah. eventually I'm removing the activity and I'm just drinking, yeah. but it's mm -hmm. like, it's, it's like now I can say the exact opposite, which I'm, I'm super grateful for, but I can look at that situation and say there, alcohol is not going to make that any better, right? Like whether I'm grieving, whether I'm celebrating, um, you know, whatever the case is now, like I can look at that and honestly say like alcohol is not going to make that any better. And I think that I really did have to go through a process of looking at these hard truths, um, mm -hmm. and, and really diving into, you know, why I'm consuming, what happens when I consume and, and what happens when I try not to consume, um, that, you know, really leads me to, to see the evidence clearly in front of me that, you know, like, I, I think I have a problem with this because I'm dealing with consequences now that, mm. that I, that are obviously very detrimental and I'm not able to stop. Um, mm -hmm. and, and at least for me, that's the point I got to, right. Um, and so I think that actually that segues very well into the next thing I really want to talk to you about, which is the, uh, the ACEs um, exam mm -hmm. that you talk about in your um, story. Mm -hmm. And for those of you that don't know what ACEs is, can you just tell us what the acronym is? Yeah, so it stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, and it's a test that is most often taken retroactively. So it's taken by adults after their childhood and it's used to assess um, how or how many adverse ad events we experience as children. So like up to age 18, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and then the idea is um, the higher your ACEs score is, and it's out of 10, um, the more likely you are to experience the consequences of your childhood trauma. And that could be through developing addiction that could be poor health outcomes. Mm. So like heart disease, obesity, um, diabetes on and on. Um, and it could also result in just like, um, it, problems with moving through life the way others do. So maybe not graduating, maybe not having career advancement. Um, yeah. So that's ACEs in a nutshell. Yeah, well, and I and I, and the reason why I think it's 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 interesting to talk about because 
we, so we ended up, Willie and I both took the ACEs test before the show, um, just mm-hmm. because we were, we were just so curious and, um, spoiler alert, like Willie got a six out of 10, which is um, pretty good, right? Yeah. Like, that's a high score. I mean, if you're, if you <laughs> like nailing we, it, well, we, <laughs> we laugh because we've, we've done a lot of work, right? Like it's not always, it's not always that funny, but yeah, uh, well, we laughing laugh. or crying. Yeah. Know? Laugh yeah. About it now. <laughs> I think we're playing by golf rules on that score, which in which case I won um, because (laughs) I had a one out of 10. Right. But and Uh and, and here's the thing about it. Right. Is I'm sitting next to somebody that's got a a six out of 10. And again, you yourself a place to six out of 10. And but so it's not the only determining factor. But that's right. It absolutely is like a gauge as to whether or not, you know, like maybe maybe there's these things that happen that, that are, are reasons why I drink. And, and for Mm -hmm. me, what I, what I found interesting is in my own story, just to give you a quick little, uh, blurb of where I was at, like right before I quit drinking or right before I attempted to quit or, or whatever the case, right in there somewhere. But like Mm -hmm. I had a job that I was absolutely miserable at that I felt stuck at. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then I had a very, very close cousin pass away. Um, mm-hmm. and then I had a relationship that ended in a very dramatic way. Um, mm-hmm. and simultaneously I'm drinking and I've discovered Oxycontin. So for me, mm-hmm. it's like, it, it feels like there was this perfect storm of things yeah. that happened, like just at the right time that really, you know, led me down this, this road of complete destruction and addiction. And so I find it kind of fascinating because even if this stuff doesn't happen to us, you know, ages one through 18, it, Mm -hmm. it still seems as though there are traumatic events that, that occur in our lives that can absolutely uh, play a role in that addiction. I won't say manifesting itself, but maybe manifest manifesting itself quicker. Um, Mm -hmm. is what my experience is. It's, it's likely that at some point down the road, like all that stuff may have become an issue for me, but it became an issue for me the way that it did because of those events right at that time. Um, so, so the, I, I think the ACEs is, is super helpful in that way. And, and do you feel like the stuff that you dealt with as a child absolutely played into your relationship with alcohol and the reason why you drink the way you did? Like, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, what I liked about ACEs, um, is that, I mean, a, a couple of things. So obviously trauma is one factor, right. In a gamut of factors that, you know, increases our propensity to like look to substances or whatever it is. Um, So I think that's really important. And I also think it's important to remember that it's a correlation. It's not causation. And we often mix those two things up. Um, So I think like, I just wanted to mention that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I like you, I think it's helpful. Um, When I first learned about ACEs and then I actually took the test, it provided me with context essentially for my life Mm. and research to demonstrate that 
when terrible things happen, it does have an impact. It's not just like it happens in a vacuum and it's just over here. It does actually have an impact. Um, And it almost felt validating. Like, obviously I lived through my own experiences, but to have them written on a test to be like, yeah, we categorize this type of thing as trauma. Mm -hmm. And if this has happened to you, like check here. Um, Mm -hmm. And it really helped me make me feel like my addiction was not my fault, which was really helpful because I spent a lot of time mentally beating myself up just being like what the fuck is wrong with you Mm. like why can't you get through this why can't you fix this how did you get here why isn't your sister like this like we lived in the same home we went through a lot of the same things like Mm. what the fuck like why can't i fix this so it really felt helpful and it's not the only thing, right? It's not the only thing. It's not like this happened and then you're automatically here, but I found it to be really helpful. And I think it can also be really helpful on a prevention side, right? If Mm -hmm. we have kids and we understand like, these are the kinds of things you want to avoid, especially if we're hoping to change the outcome for them later on in life. Yeah. That's that, that's one of the things that came up for me right there was I could see the stuff that I need to avoid as a father, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If, if I can pay attention to those things and, and do my best, you know, not to protect them or anything, but, you know, avoid these traumatic experiences for them, but give them experiences. And the other thing was it really pointed out, and, and there's a lot of the stuff that's in there that I have worked on, um, mm-hmm. but, it, but it was a fast track to some of the things that maybe I should have looked at sooner. Mm. As yeah. far as cleaning up and you, you touch a little bit on your story about, you know, really combing through the past of your life and, and yeah. recognizing and, and detailing, you know, the things that happened and the things that you did. And so, you know, I can take a look at some of those questions that are on the ACEs test and, and go back. Um, I don't know if I would suggest anybody doing this alone or with a therapist. I don't know how I would suggest anybody doing this because I'm not a professional, Um, like we talked about, you know, I found my recovery through the 12 steps of AA, which I had a Mm -hmm. support person and you talk about support. Um, you know, he shared a lot of the same experiences and he opened up to me with his experiences in a lot of those places that were on the ACEs test, such as, you know, neglect and abuse and sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and trauma and those kind of things. But, um, it gives, it it gave, would have gave me a starting point much sooner They go, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe I need to look at uh, how I was provided nutritionally as a child, right? Which, which in fact, plays a part in the ACEs test. You know, was I fed and and Mm -hmm. correctly or, or, you know, were my parents fighting or divorced? You know, those, those kind of things. And um, so I found it interesting that, you know, I could do that. And they put me back in that place for a minute while I was taking it. And I'm just... Today, I'm really grateful that I've been able to deal with those things on such a healthy manner through the help yeah. of other people. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's, it's huge. You know, stuff like yeah. this. So, I yeah, dig it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And another thing that you said that I, I really, I, it kind of took me back to, um, for me, I went through treatment, right? Like I went to a rehabilitation center twice. Um, I mm-hmm. liked it so much. I went back for a second dose. <laughs> 
Um, Round two, yeah. Because I'm an alcoholic <laughs> and an addict, and more <laughs> is always better. Yeah. Um, but it was a victory lap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The well, first time we try to we try to fix them, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the first time we, I mean, honestly, like what it is, is like the first time, like I still tried to do things my way. Like, yeah, I get what you're saying, but you know, also I'm going to do this instead. And lo and behold, like it didn't work, you know, but, um, anyways, the, the second time I, I went to treatment, one of the biggest things for me, one of, one of the biggest takeaways for me is exactly what you said, which is, this is not my fault, right? Like I, yes, I am an addict. Yes, I, I am an alcoholic and yes, I, I have this behavior associated with, with that, but it is not my fault. Um, because I like you and I'm, I mean, I'm still guilty of this today. Like I don't have to be an alcoholic to be somebody that kicks the shit out of myself, um, for, for every little thing, you know, which is, um, I think why it's important to touch on this stuff because this behavior while, while I was an addict and alcoholic was completely out of control and, you know, and it just tends to be a downward spiral of self-destruction, um, when I'm constantly kicking the shit out of myself for something I just can't seem to stop doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have to be an alcoholic or an addict to to do that to myself. Like, I don't have to be in the throes of my addiction to be somebody that struggles with self-love and, and, uh, and confidence and, um, you know, all the things that we as human beings deal with. So, I mean... Let me ask you this. Um, do you feel as though what you do as a sober coach um, could be something that could benefit anybody? Uh, yes, absolutely. And and I say that not to be overly confident, but I say that because um, everybody comes to me because they want to deal with their relationship to drinking. And we do that. And there's always a whole bunch of other shit below the surface that we deal with. That's just like human Mm -hmm, stuff, mm -hmm. right? Like lack of self-love, lack of confidence, not feeling worthy, not feeling like you belong. Um, No boundaries, like people pleasing, all of that shit, Mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. that's just like human stuff. Um, So absolutely. Um, Definitely like alcohol is the focal point. And then we get to like the real reason why we're here. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, I yeah. agree. I agree. Like alcohol, alcohol was my solution. Uh, the problem, right? the problem was the way I viewed myself mm-hmm. and, yeah. and a lot of it, I, I didn't even know that I was viewing myself in this negative manner. You know, I, mm-hmm. I thought, uh, I thought very low of myself, but I didn't know that yeah. that was uncommon and I didn't yeah. know how to. Um, really talk about that feeling of myself. All I, all I knew, and, and really the only reason that I knew I had a problem with drugs and alcohol was because everybody let me know, right? Like yeah. the cops would let me know when they would arrest me for, you know, being violent and drunk. Like this is a problem, you know, and then the judge would let me know or, you know, yeah. um, uh, because for me, it, it really was a solution. I would, I would drink and I would feel better right. about uh, how I felt about myself because I would forget about me mm-hmm. while I was yeah. intoxicated. And then when I wake up there, I am again. Yeah. And, and not only there, I am again, 
Here is the memory of all the things that I did against the highest version of myself the night before, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I would stuff it back down with more alcohol or food or sex or whatever would take me out of that space. And so really, I needed other people on the other side of that, you know, just like I needed people pointing out and finally convincing me that this thing is a problem. Yeah. Um, I needed people on the other side of that pointing out that, you know, well, may, maybe it's time for you to start loving yourself. And, and what mm-hmm. does that look like? And so I think I think that's a great question, too. You know, we talked about your resilience building, but one of one of the things, you know, maybe you could touch on how you start after the alcohol has been addressed and, and somebody mm-hmm. is staying sober or really, you know, giving it a try. You talk about this in your story where you, you gave it a half-ass attempt and then you finally made that decision to really commit. Um, mm-hmm. When somebody comes to you and they've finally really committed, what are some of the things that you do to help build that or help them recognize their self-worth? Or, or do you have like some uh, assignments that you give people or, or something like that to help build that? new lifestyle? Um, I mean, definitely like I have a plethora of handouts and workbooks and all of that kind of stuff to support people in working through, um, as well as books. And on the topic of self-love, there is a book called, um, the body is not an apology. Um, I'm just looking at this, uh, by Sonia Renee Taylor, there's a subtitle to that, but, um, that book for me. So I also, and like, this doesn't really come up very much, which is why it wasn't in my story, but I also dealt with disordered eating mm. and, um, I mean, between disordered eating and alcohol addiction, I was destroying myself Oh yeah, every single day. Um, and so this book, um, is some, it's a book I've read like three times. I recommend it to every single client of mine because of how profoundly she tackles the topic of radical self-love. And I actually think, so she deals with it from a, an individual perspective and also from a community perspective. And I actually think that if we could all heal ourselves in that regard, like if we all were able to show up and radically love ourselves, regardless of how we look, regardless of our body shape and size, regardless of our past mistakes, regardless of addiction, regardless of mental health issues, I honestly think addiction wouldn't even exist, which feels like a bold statement. Um, (laughs) And in terms of how to get there, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different things, but what I can say is it takes time. It takes practice. It takes a lot of unlearning and undoing the messages, the beliefs, the way that we talk to ourselves, again, the language that we use to describe ourselves. Um, it takes cultivating, um, a really high level of self-awareness so that we can catch in those moments when we're calling ourselves a stupid fucking idiot or whatever Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. um, so that we can redirect um, to something that's more compassionate and more understanding and give ourselves more grace on a regular basis. Um, And I think, you know, there are lots of ways that 
uh, self-care practices come into that boundaries for me is an act of radical self-love. Like I'm saying yes to myself and yes to my own needs. And that usually means saying no to somebody else. And I finally got into a place where I don't give a fuck. Like I'm happy to do that for myself. Um, and that's not, that's not always so common. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there are, you know, a multitude of roads that lead to, uh, radical self-love. And I think everyone's journey is a little bit different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was always like an action thing. Um, I always had to, uh, you know, when I, when I started getting sober this last time and I started working with my AA sponsor, every, every step that I did, everything that I completed, uh, helped build that. Right. And so, it, it came to me through through a lot of little successes over and over and over again. And I mm-hmm. had to convince myself that it matters, right? Because yeah. that, that was one of the things that I had a really hard time with was, was yeah, I know that uh, I know that I'm staying sober and I got a job and I'm, I'm working on my debts and I'm paying. My, but that's stuff that everybody does. Right. I'm not special in this, you know, and that wasn't true. You know, the fact of the matter is, is, is that stuff was hard for me, you know, yeah. doing anything responsible was hard for me. And so mm-hmm. I had to, to kind of turn that around and go, you know, you know what, this, this does matter. You know, the yeah. fact that you are sober today does matter. Mm-hmm. The fact mm-hmm. that you are getting up and that you are changing the way that you eat or, you know, all the things that I've built my life around today, you know, you touch on in your story as well, um, you know taking really good care of your body. And, and that's important to me too. It seems like, seems like these pathways really parallel each yeah. other as far as like going through and identifying, um, you know, that there is a problem, that there's a substance involved, you know, making that decision to get rid of that substance, going through whatever we have to, to get rid of it. And then hitting the underlying issues of, yeah. you know, past trauma, self-love, you know, making, making new habits, going through and connecting with people, eventually mm-hmm. cleaning up our debts and our past. Because I think, I think any debt is a spiritual debt. Like I can't be in, in, in financial debt and not feel it emotionally and physically. Sure. You know, I can't be in physical debt, um, you know, where my body's out of shape or, you know, I'm not getting enough rest or, you know, I'm in a sleep deficit or anything like that. And I can't feel that uh, emotionally or psychologically. And so we start cleaning up our debts and then we find other people to help. And that Mm -hmm. seems like, seems like that's the recipe for success in this whole thing is, is, is taking care of ourselves to the point where we can kind of share that with somebody. And hopefully that somebody can hear what it is that we're getting at and then continue to learn, right? Like we Mm -hmm. continue to learn this stuff through other people, um, and things like that. So, I think it's great, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like I feel, I feel lucky to be on this side of it. And I, I, I too, you know, I want to touch, uh, something that you said when you were talking there is that there's so much unlearning that has to happen. And, Mm -hmm. and I feel like it's sad. Like I get disappointed. Um, the, well, just, just yesterday, actually, let me give you a little story here. Like I, I went and I, um, got a drink at, uh, at this place around here where you get drinks that's the story and, <laughs> and i i ordered a drink not from an this, alcoholic drink, no no no, no um just at a drive-thru right and i ordered a drink from this um young woman she was probably 17 um and uh, and i asked her for a drink and she said oh we don't have that drink here 
And I said, I, I mean, I just read it off the menu board. And she said, oh, my gosh, I'm so stupid. I, yes, I used to work here, and they didn't have it, and now they have it here. And I looked at her, and I was like, you're not stupid. Like, you know, like, this is, this is yeah. the, the language that I feel like is so harmful that we just mm-hmm. do so nonchalantly um, yeah. that I feel like really is just so, so detrimental um, and mm-hmm. I feel like they, that takes some time to change. Like that is a process to really get out of the habit of saying just those little things that just come naturally that can that can really impact us. And and so it kind of made me sad just because I would I would like to hope that maybe more people are more aware of that and instilling that thought into their children. And and so you know to have this seventeen year old say that I was just like. I, I really wanted to just sit her down and, and say, listen, you've got to, but I, you know, I, I basically just said, you're not stupid mm-hmm. and, and, and that'll have to be enough for now. Um, but, but good for you for saying that. Cause most people might just let that go. Yeah. Right. Right. And then she just moves forward in her day, having just called herself stupid for a tiny yeah, error right. of very no, no consequence. And uh, you actually like intervened on that moment for her to be like, actually, no, it's all good. You're not stupid. And thank you so much or whatever. Um, and hopefully like that will switch something for her or even just like bring attention to maybe a moment that would just come and go for her regularly multiple times a day. Yeah. yeah. Put it's a powerful. It Absolutely. really is. Yeah. One person helping another. Yeah. Well, we can. Yeah. Can do what we can, I guess. Yeah, can't do this stuff alone. Absolutely so. not. This this has been great. I feel like I could probably do this a lot longer. But, you know, I, <laughs> I I'm, agree. I'm, yeah. I'm really it's, enjoying this conversation. Um, learning a yeah, lot. Me too. And and you know, your story we, we we touched on a little bit, but I'm excited for everybody to hear your story um, to kind of get some more context about where we got these topics from that we've been talking about all day. So right now is probably a good time to introduce that. And so, absolutely. uh, what do you say? Let's do it. Yeah. So without further ado, here is Amy Stewart. This week's war story is brought to you by brainwashed coffee. Brainwashed coffee is a damn good coffee with a damn good cause. 50% 50% of all proceeds go back into the recovery community, which makes it a perfect partner for us here at the Other Side of Hell podcast. With delicious blends like Coffee Commitment, Found a New Freedom, we drink a hell of a lot of it here, and it gives us the energy we need to deliver a quality show. Right now, you can get $5 off your coffee purchase at brainwashedcoffeeco.com using promo code OTHERSIDE. Clean your beans. Brainwashed Coffee. Now, without further ado, here is this week's war story. My name is Amy C. Willis. I use she, her pronouns. I am a sobriety and mindset coach, and I work professionally in the recovery space to support women in reclaiming their freedom and their sobriety, or their freedom and their power, really, through sobriety. And I come to this work 
after dealing with addiction in my own life for more than 15 years and also through growing up in a house where my dad had a really severe alcohol addiction and I ultimately lost him to that addiction. So the work that I do is deeply personal and very meaningful for me. And um, I feel deeply honored that I get to do it and that I get to support women in having um, an impact on their lives and really changing what their lives look like in really positive and meaningful ways. So in addition to being a dual certified coach, I'm also a writer and a speaker, and I'm a meditation teacher and an EFT practitioner. And those are modalities that I also bring into my work. And the foundation of, I would say, my coaching practice is radical honesty, mindset transformation, habit change, and resiliency building. Um, so I live and work in Toronto, Canada when I'm not working, which seems like, like not that much time. Um, I love spending time outside. I'm big into hiking. I'm into indoor cycling. I read a ton. Uh, during COVID, because I was looking for a hobby, I started to cross-stitch, and now I've cross-stitched up a storm and probably made close to 100 pieces in the last year and a half. So um, yeah, so that's a little bit about me and um, a little bit about my story. So like I think a lot of people, I started experimenting with drinking in high school um, around the age 16. So as I had mentioned, I grew up in a home with a parent who dealt with addiction. And so alcohol was always around and it was always present. And I had had, you know, sips of beer um, from my dad, probably as young as maybe six or seven. And I think his intentions were to give it to me and, and hope that it tasted awful, which it did, so that I would be turned off of it. Uh, which I was turned off of beer, but I, I was not turned off of alcohol. So I started drinking when I was 16. And I think externally, it looked very similar to how my friends and my peers were drinking. Um, but internally, I'm now really clear that I was drinking because it was a really easy way to escape from my life and to escape from what was happening in my life. So coincidentally, at this same time that I started drinking, my parents were going through a very, very messy, very drawn out separation with a lot of extra trauma. So it, it wasn't just that my, my parents and our family unit was changing very dramatically, but we had found out that there were years and years of lies. There was police involvement. There was, you know, potential criminal charges on the table. So some really messy shit for a 16 year old to be dealing with. And I was living in that chaos for months, you know, from when we first found out what was going on to when we finally got a, a bit of a resolution to it was months. So it was just each day was another thing. And it was, it was a really tough time. And there really wasn't a lot of support available. And I think my mom, in trying to navigate what was also, I imagine, a terrible situation for her, um, 
she didn't really know how to support us. I genuinely believe that she did the best she could, but she also didn't want us talking about it to anybody. So we weren't allowed to talk about it. Therapy was not a thing. Um, and so it was just like existing in this really terrible, traumatic chaos for months and months and months. And so I started drinking and it gave me this relief and it allowed me to really press pause on all the terrible shit that was happening in my life. Um, so now I know that when I first started drinking, I had an ACEs score. So ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. It is an assessment used um, in a, a correlative way to determine the likelihood that somebody might develop an addiction later on in their lives. So um, adverse childhood events could be things like parents separating, somebody dying, somebody going to prison, physical sexual abuse, etc. So um, when I started drinking, I had an ACEs score of six out of 10. Um, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that relationship. I didn't understand what that was. I didn't understand that I was flirting with a really addictive substance. And so I feel now like I was going into the situation very blind. Um, so anyway, that's sort of how it got started. And early on, I started to do things like hide my booze. I was drinking alone in my bedroom, probably within the first year or so of drinking, which looking back on it now feels like this huge red flag in terms of drinking behavior. And that was something that I don't think my peers were doing. Um, and, you know, as it does, my drinking and addiction to alcohol really progressed. So I regularly blacked out. I have tons of unaccounted for time in my drinking days, which is like really scary to think about now, especially as a woman, like I inadvertently put myself in a lot of really risky and unsafe situations because of my drinking. Like I would regularly wake up covered in bruises and have no idea what had happened the last, I don't know, eight to 10 hours, have no idea who I was with, how I got home, what I did, what I didn't do. Um, so that was sort of my regular experience with drinking. In addition to blacking out a lot, I was often really sick as a result of my drinking. And despite all of that, outwardly, my, uh, my life still mostly looked okay. I finished an undergrad degree. I went to grad school. I went after a lot of really awesome experiences. I always, you know, worked part-time, full-time alongside of school. I always had my bills paid. But for me, the internal consequences of what I was dealing with was really where the struggle was um, because I was regularly putting so much alcohol into my body. And because it is this massive depressant, it severely impacted my moods and my mental health. And it just, it got to this point where I was never, I would never classify myself as suicidal, but it got to a place where I was pretty indifferent about whether or not I lived. And that feels now, like now that I know myself and now that I know myself without alcohol, that feels like a really scary place to regularly be 
and like not terribly concerned about whether or not I, I don't know, got blacked out and got hit by a car and died. Like, so that's sort of where, where it was. Um, so I would see a lot of fluctuations in my mental health, um, a lot of fluctuations in my moods. I would say and do things that were very out of character for me. I would ruffle a lot of feathers. I would cause a lot of fights with people. And it just felt very, very destructive. Um, so despite all of that, I kept drinking. And what ended up being the probably most impactful turning point was in terms of my drinking and, and my addiction, um, as well as what happened next, was when I suddenly and unexpectedly found out that my dad had died. And that happened in 2014. And as I mentioned earlier, he had a really severe alcohol addiction and he ended up drinking himself to death. And, uh, and I said, you know, it was sudden and unexpected. And for context, like he and I had been estranged for years and we hadn't spoken. So it was very um, out of the blue um, and very shocking to learn that he had passed away. So you might think that your father drinking himself to death would be an immediate change in my drinking, but it was not. So I kept drinking. Um, I very much drank to deal with the pain and the grief of losing him. Um, yeah, I, I definitely didn't quit drinking immediately. My addiction got a lot worse after he died. I was tremendously sad and really overcome with grief. And I didn't think, I didn't believe that I could handle or withstand the intensity of the feelings that I was experiencing. So I drank about it. So I didn't have to deal with them, but pro tip, all the feelings are still there when you stop drinking. So sometimes it's better to just like lean in and deal with the shit. But anyway, hindsight is 2020. Um, so I continued to drink heavily for another year and sometime in 2015, it's like all a bit blurry, but after the acute grief had passed, um, I was still drinking a ton, but I was starting to ask myself different questions about the role that alcohol played in my life. And I really do think that losing my dad was a big part of those questions starting to bubble to the surface. So, you know, if anybody out there is listening and they have experienced the death of a loved one or a parent, even having death so close to you really changes you. It changed me. Um, and it really changed my perspective on pretty much everything around me. So all the petty shit that used to get under my skin just no longer seemed important or like worthy of my time or attention. And through the lens of death, which sounds morbid, but I actually think was really helpful for me. Everything started to look different, including my drinking. Um, and I think like death 
is this really strange and unique experience? I mean, it's incredibly common, right? We see death all the time. It's something that every single one of us is going to experience and go through, yet it's elusive and unknown, and it's the most permanent experience and finite experience that any of us will have, and it's unlike anything else we've experienced in the rest of our lives. Everything else is pretty impermanent comparatively. Um, so I think the finality of my dad being gone and losing him in the way that I did really prompted me to evaluate what actually matters. Like, what, what do I actually give a shit about in my life? And I think I gradually arrived at a place where I just started to get curious. Like, is there more to life than this? Like this, this can't be it for me. Like, and this being addiction, right? So the amount of time that you spend thinking about drinking or whatever your drug of choice is, the amount of time you spend consuming it, the hangover, the planning to drink again. And like the cycle just goes on and on and on. And I was just like, there has to be more like this cannot be it for me. Um, and that sort of, I think was a, was a turning point for me, like this can't be it, like there needs to be more. Um, and I think around that same time I started in addition to the curiosity, just like that small voice inside of me that told me that like, yes, there is in fact more, there is more available to you than this like vicious cycle that probably is just shortening your life and it's ultimately going to kill you. Um, and I just, I didn't know what it was and I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I just kept thinking or feeling maybe it was my intuition, which like in my addiction, I got so disconnected from that. It was just hard to even know what's what, but I just kept feeling like I am here for a different purpose. I'm supposed to be doing something that's bigger than this and more meaningful than this. And I am wasting my days and my life drinking and being hungover. And so from that place of curiosity and just kind of wondering like what, what else is possible um, over the next year, I sort of tried to get sober and I'll be the first to say that it was very half-assed, like very, very, I approached it in a very non-committal way. Like, Oh, maybe I'll just not drink for a couple of days and see how it goes. So there was no, ironclad decision. Like I'm going to do this thing, no matter fucking what it takes. None of that. It was just like, I'll see what happens. And so I would quit for maybe a week or maybe two weeks. And then I would celebrate how well I did by drinking my face off for the next few weeks. Um, and in the time when I wasn't drinking that week or two, I would magically convince myself that my drinking wasn't so bad um, yeah, and then I would reward myself with the thing I was trying to get rid of, which is something we do to ourselves, I've noticed. But uh, yeah, so I hadn't really made the decision yet. So of course, I kept going back. I kept going back to the thing that I knew. And I wasn't really doing any of the work to actually change my life. I was just trying to not put this substance into my body, but like not really dealing with any of the other shit that brought me to that place to begin with. And so in August, 2016, I finally made 
the real ironclad decision that I was done. Um, so I had arrived at that place where I wasn't just wondering if there was more to it, but I was like, I know there's more, I know there's more available in life beyond this. I know that I'm meant for more. I know that I have more to give. And I knew that alcohol was holding me back and killing me. Like I was slow burn killing myself drink by drink. And I finally got clear that that was not what I was here to do. And in witnessing my dad's life and death, I had a very clear trajectory of where my life was going if I didn't make some serious changes. And so August 22nd, 2016 is my sober date. And I'm now more than five and a half years sober. So Thank goodness. <laughs> um, so initially I decided I was going to be sober for six months. I could not swallow the idea of giving up booze forever. I just couldn't do it. It felt like this massive mountain that I was not prepared to climb. So I was like, I will, I will do this, like really do this for six months and I will reassess at the six month mark. And then the six month mark approached and I was terrified at the thought of drinking again. Um, I knew that I would end up back where I was and things would continue to get worse and worse and worse. I was in no way convinced that I could just like moderate, which doesn't really work anyway. Um, but I was, you know, I had no illusions that it would be easy or it would be fine and I could just have a drink here or there. Um, so it was, it was at the six month mark that I decided that I was done with alcohol forever. Um, I got clear that drinking wasn't actually worth it. And I was no longer willing to gamble my one precious life anymore. And so when I quit, I got radically honest with myself and I got clear on and it was hard, but I got clear on all the ways that I was participating in keeping my addiction going, right? So part of that was acknowledging all the trauma and early exposure to drinking and all the like aces type stuff of my past. And I knew that none of that stuff was my fault, but I was really clear that I was responsible now to clean it up in my life. And I no longer got to recycle that trauma as the reason to stay in my addiction. And that was a hard, <laughs> hard lesson to get to, but I, I had to be responsible for it and I had to like figure it out myself. Um, so I really just like went through pretty much all of my life with a fine tooth comb. I, I took stock of my habits, right? Cause it's not just the drinking, but it's all the other shit around it. Um, and got rid of stuff that was, that looked anything remotely like challenging to my sobriety. So I really made my sobriety, like the most important thing in my life. So if there was anything that was remotely, challenging to it, I either stopped doing it or I got it out of my life entirely. Um, I connected with other sober women online to just find some hope and find evidence that other people had gone through what I had gone through and they had made it out the other side and they 
liked their lives, right? I just, I wanted to find some inspiration and ultimately just feel less alone um, in how I was feeling and what I was experiencing. Um, And also a bit about me that I haven't mentioned yet. I was in academia for a long time. Um, I read a ton. I have a research-based master's degree. And so when I'm looking to change something in my life, I like hit the books and I look at research and I read everything I could get my hands on um, to better understand addiction, the neuroscience behind it, like what's actually happening when we put alcohol into our bodies. And I found that that information was super helpful in clearing up my relationship to drinking because there is so much misinformation out there right now about alcohol. Um, And so, you know, I got the facts and I read and I read other people's stories and, and that was tremendously helpful. And then other things like I developed rock solid boundaries for my life and myself um, and my, yeah, my relationship with alcohol has totally changed. My relationships in my life change. Um, I have a very low uh, threshold for bullshit. So like I don't have drama in my life and I don't have people who bring drama into my life. Um, And through this process, I also actually learned like how to take care of myself, which is something that I didn't really know how to do until I got sober. Um, So inspired by my own experiences, and at the time, what felt like a lack of options, I decided to become a sobriety coach. And after I started to share some of my experiences publicly, I got so many private messages from women who said that they were also struggling with drinking or they didn't like the role that it played in their lives, but they didn't know how to change it or they didn't know what to do with it. And I knew that, you know, I could contribute something and I could be helpful and I could use my own experiences as well as, you know, my coaching training to support other people in changing their lives. Um, And for me, sobriety was the best decision I had ever made. I've ever made in my whole life. And I finally feel free and powerful and I have a life that I love and I wanted to be able to support other women in finding that. Um, And now I continue to prioritize taking really exceptional care of myself and that really supports my sobriety. I get tons of sleep. I manage my stress. I move my body. I surround myself with uh, people very intentionally, people who are good for me who are boundaried who are clear communicators also no bullshit like who you have around you makes such a difference um i continue to expand my knowledge around addiction and the alcohol industry um i practice meditation and mindfulness to really take care of my brain um and really through my work i am continually inspired by my clients and their journeys Um, and in some ways it feels like they're also really helpful in bolstering my, my sobriety as well. Um, so that's a bit about my story and, um, for anybody listening, if you were thinking about quitting drinking, um, I would just offer that it is never too late or too early to change your life. 
you do not have to wait for things to get worse before they can get better. So regardless of what's already happened, you have a say in what happens next. So just like remember that because I know that sometimes that can feel we can forget, right? We can we can forget that we have a say. Um, I also want to just remind folks that um, they already have, you already have everything you need inside you to create change and you have the power to do it. And sometimes that change just looks like saying yes to something and no to something else. And that can be your starting point. Um, and I know sometimes we get stuck on the question of, am I an alcoholic or not? So maybe instead of asking that, maybe ask a question like, is alcohol supporting the life that I want to live? Is alcohol serving me in a positive way? Is alcohol propelling me forward or holding me back? And um, I think my favorite question is, is alcohol good enough to keep? Right. We sometimes think in terms of how how bad has the situation gotten? Has it gotten so bad that I'm willing to say no to alcohol? And what if we flip that on its head and ask, like, is this thing good enough to keep in my life? Um, and I think finally, getting genuinely curious about your relationship to drinking is a really great place to start. Um, so if you are looking to connect with me further, you can find me on Instagram at Ms. Amy C. Willis, um, or you can find me via my website, which is wholeandwell.com, and that's H-O-L-A-N-D-W-E-L-L.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Those, those questions are great. You know, I, I, I really appreciate that flip around of because you're right like obviously i'm banging my head against the wall mm -hmm. uh is this me banging my head against the wall doing me any good like is this worth it uh, is this worth keeping um and yeah. we have to ask that question with so much garbage in our lives like mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah it's thank you always, for sharing your story by yeah. the way um it's, yeah it's for pleasure. sure not always easy to see when you're in it but it's like in in retrospect I look back at all the things I did to try so desperately to keep alcohol in my life. Like I, you know, I, I, I tried to moderate, I tried to, you know, only consume certain alcohol. I tried to, you know, limit it to this or limit it to that. And it's because I, I, I had that obsessive need to just keep some sort of alcoholic element in my life. And, and, that was something about your story too that I really appreciated is just the juggernaut of forever because uh -huh. when we first decide that, that, you know, it has to go, um, uh -huh. like to think about being rid of it altogether forever is huge. It's so big. Uh -huh. In fact, that usually if we think about it in that context, we quit before we even start. Right. So, yeah. um, so I really appreciated that about your story. And I think, you know, if you can tell yourself that you can quit for six months or, or three months or today or whatever it is. And that's one thing that's big in a 12 step program is, you know, like, I think I'm just going to not drink today, like one day at a time. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. um, I think that 
it, it holds true for any alcoholic or anybody that struggles with alcohol addiction or addiction in general is like, it doesn't have to be so big, right? Like yeah. We, we can break it down to little bite-sized morsels that are a little bit more digestible and be like, dude, why don't you just not do it today? Yeah. Um, yeah. And for me, that was crucial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One yeah. of the, one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit, you know, I, I really appreciate you sharing your your uh, journey with your father's death and, you know, being so open about um, the lack of, of relationship that you had with him prior to dying and then moving in and talking about death and and how that's kind of motivated you um, somewhat in your own sobriety now, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I, I death, like you said, is something that's not talked about a lot, but it's something that I think about a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, how did you, how did you come that you seem okay with it? you like, you like, it's <laughs> like you said, it's pretty natural. It's almost as natural as birth. And so like how, you know, how did you come to being able to be so comfortable with it? You know, for me, it's part of my journey and, and having to, you know, maybe you've heard momentum more, you know, that today, like, like it's going to mm-hmm. end kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, what, what was that for you? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, and I'm glad we're talking about death again, because yeah. I really think that it is, there's so much fear around it. Oh, yeah. And that's not to say that I still don't maybe have some, but there's so much fear around it and people just like brush it off, which is why I think it is so um, jilting for us when it actually happens. Cause we're like, we're so unprepared generally, I think. Um, so yeah, like losing my dad, I never would have guessed that he would have been the first person sort of in my immediate life to pass away. Mm. Um, cause he, you know, I was 31 when he died. Like most people generally lose their parents later on in life. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, um, I, after he died, well, I mean, first of all, I think like a big part of changing my relationship to death is accepting the reality of it. Um, I think a lot of us deny the reality of it um, through not talking about it, through not thinking about it, through pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off. Um, And also like not connecting that, like the things we do now actually have an impact in the future. And so it's very easy to not worry about something that may or may not happen 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, But after my dad died, I did what I often do when I'm like dealing with something. And that is I hit the books because I'm a nerd and I'm a big researcher and like I've research training from like my graduate degree. So I read everything I could get my hands on around death. Um, Mm. I watched movies that talked about death. I watched documentaries that talked about death. Um, I listened to music that was about death. And I just like really immersed myself in the experience. Um, And also I looked at like how a lot of other cultures around the world do their death practices and North America is pretty sanitized we'll say and very like there's a lot of distance yeah hands off kind of yeah very hands off interesting um 
So, yeah, so I, I just actually spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about the topic. And I also started talking about it with people in my life. So I think admittedly, I was that weird gal who like maybe would make a few too many morbid jokes <laughs> and just like slightly off color. Um, <laughs> but I was like, this is also part of my processing of my grief is to like have conversations about it and um, not have it always and only be a topic that is dark and sad and full of grief. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think, um, it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, the different ways that people have to grieve and, and to know mm-hmm. that you really just threw yourself in the subject of death is, mm-hmm. uh, is fascinating because I mean, death has always been really, really, uh, it's always screwed me up like big time. Like I, yeah. I mean, I, I just never understood it. I didn't like it. I, I was completely traumatized by it. Anytime anybody in my immediate family would, would suffer from it. And, and for me, like, a, a, you know, I lost a very, very close loved one, um, in a really horrible way that I just, I didn't, I didn't understand it at all. And, yeah. and like I said before, you know, that was really one of the points where I really kind of went off the deep end. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that like, like we do with alcoholism, um, you know, the more we know about it, the more we can hopefully like come to terms with it, at least in a way that it's not having a negative impact. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I like that about your approach to death and to just the, the subject of alcohol addiction in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I know, I know for me, like I'm, I'm a little bit opposite. I'm more like you are now where where I'm really open to the idea. Uh, I don't necessarily want it to happen to me today, but <laughs> on, on, the, on the tail of that, you know, I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity to live. You know, yeah. I get to live today. And um, I think all of this stuff that we've been talking about kind of brings me around to that point, right? Is, is that for me, using and drinking alcohol is death. Uh, I mm-hmm. go through an emotional death. I go through a spiritual death. Mm. I go through a financial death. Uh, I go through relationship deaths, mm-hmm. connection death. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm at this place where you were talking about in your story where I'm not necessarily suicidal, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind if I didn't wake up. Oh, yeah. And that's someplace that I never want to be again. And so yeah. it's, it's very motivating for me to stay on this side of the table and do the mm-hmm. stuff that you're talking about, connecting with people and being part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I'm really grateful to be a part of that, you know. So and I'm I'm yeah. really grateful that you are too. I think the more people we have on this side doing the work that you're doing, getting the message mm-hmm. out that you're getting out, having the resources that you have that you've come up with on your own, that you've researched, that you've gathered, you know, the things that you've collected and are able to teach other people what you've learned. Is just huge, and, and and I appreciate that very much. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I everything he said. I, I just want to say, <laughs> yeah, same. no, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I really, I, I think that this has been such a great conversation just to have you on here, and I think for me, it's been, uh, it's been really refreshing, and and uh, in a way, just totally needed to kind of talk about this stuff in in a way that uh, that doesn't always feel. Um, you know, familiar um, or like common territory for us. Like yeah. if we're able to sort of mm-hmm. break out our 
our comfort zone and really just uh, talk about this in a way that uh, that is almost just from a human perspective rather than you know just an alcoholic or addict perspective yep. and so mm-hmm. um, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story yeah this has been yeah. really fun thank you we'll uh I'll, I'll have Cameron I'll ask Cameron to go ahead and put a link to this aces test in the notes um if anybody wants to check it out for themselves, you know, again, we're not professionals. I don't know what you can do with it other than take it and then make your own decision after that. We'll put the, uh, you know, how to get a hold of you on there. You want to go ahead and, and shout out your Instagram and your uh, website and stuff again real quick. Yeah, before. yeah, absolutely. Um, if anyone's interested in connecting with me on Instagram, my handle is at Ms. Amy C. Willis. So M-S-A-M-Y-C-W-I-L-L-I-S. And my website is wholeandwell.com. So it's spelled H-O-L-A-N-D-W-E-L-L.com. And you are doing the Lose the Booze uh, program right now? Is that- yeah, I actually uh, just started another round of my Lose the Booze group coaching program. It started last week. So I'm going to run it again in the summer. Um yeah. You want so to tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, so it is an eight week group coaching program and each week includes a group coaching call. So everybody gets one-on-one coaching time with me and also the opportunity to witness other people's coaching. Um, I find from my own experiences in being on the receiving end of group coaching, um, you know, we all have probably a lot more in common than not. Mm -hmm. Um, And we all have so much to share with each other and to learn from one another. And so I find that the group coaching format is really powerful and people take a lot, you know, from whatever I may or may not have to say, but also from other members of the group. So it's, um, it's really powerful. Um, And then I also do um, weekly trainings that are accompanied with handouts and, workshop or not workshop action steps, um, and basically homework to continue, you know, forward momentum in the work. So each week I do a different topic. So it could be something like self-sabotage. It could be meditation Mm. and mindfulness. It could be identifying your actual priorities in your life and how to create boundaries to honor those priorities. So that we're not always saying yes to everybody else and no to ourselves and our own lives and our goals. Um, yeah, so that's a little awesome. bit of the overview of the program. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So, yeah, if anybody yeah. wants to reach out, she gave you the invite. It's been a pleasure. Yes, it has. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, Amy, thank you yeah. so much for coming on and, and sharing your life with us. Thank you for having me. It's been really great. And uh, I just think it's worth mentioning that I really appreciate your, both of you, your openness to all kinds of things, right? Like, as you said, things that are maybe not uh, the typical conversation that you might have here, like a different route that isn't AA. Mm. Um, I just think like people need options, you know, and what works for somebody might not work for somebody else. And that's why options are important. So I really appreciate everybody's openness to just like having these conversations. I think, um, yeah, like having yeah. a willingness to change your opinion when you get new information is really powerful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I thank agree. you for that. Yeah, thank you. 
So, what do you say? Should we get out of here? That Amy, yeah, I got to get uh, on with her life. I got like some ice cream or something I got to eat now. <laughs> uh, I feel a little better. Amy, we can't thank you enough. We'll stay in touch. And, yes, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, checking us out. And thanks, thanks, Jordan. Jordan, thank you, Rylan. Thanks, Rylan. Thank you. And with that, we will see you on the other side. And remember, everybody, you are worth the work. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.